And it may come as a surprise to you that the Bible does not offer specific directions in personal decision-making in your life. However, the Bible does offer much wisdom to every believer so that they can make wise decisions, good moral decisions, and gain sound advice in making decisions in ordinary matters, but with no guarantee that those decisions will work out the way that we would like them to. So the car that you have chosen to buy based on your careful research and the application of principles found in God's Word may turn out to be a lemon, especially if it's a Ford. So. Nevertheless, Christians continue to seek something from God beyond the Scripture. So the last two messages, I focused on the idea of evaluating popular methods of discerning God's will. And the first one that we talked about was hearing the voice of God, hearing an audible voice of God, God speaking directly to a person. The real problem here is that this constitutes a special revelation. There is no other way to classify it, which is fallible. And unlike the scripture, which is God-breathed, infallible, and given to specific servants or prophets of God that we find in the Bible, in the context of the Lord's redemptive purposes, not in ordinary decision-making. So here's the key thought that I've shared throughout this series so far. There are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and specific guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal existence. So number second one that we, we focused on was listening, not for an audible voice, but for what many call the still small voice and inner voice. And the problem here is that when God speaks in the Bible, he does in inaudible words or some other dramatic fashion. But there is no basis for inner promptings, impressions, or feelings, which so many people go on. When God spoke to Elijah with a, in a still small voice, it was a what? It was a voice. And Elijah's experience in 1 Kings chapter 19 is certainly not normative for us. When the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks and into pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And that's how God chose to speak to Elijah at that time, at a time that he needed a still small voice. But the Holy Spirit's work in us is never by some inner subjective urging. That is mysticism disguised as spirituality. And historically, the church has suffered greatly at the hand of mystics, like the Desert Fathers, which began in Egypt in the early church and then continued all the way up through the, the Middle Ages. There were men and even women who sought God in isolated surroundings 
and that led to the development of monastic communities. And actually, the word monastery, if you don't know it, comes from the Greek word monasterion, which means to live alone, the idea of living alone or in isolation. But God never intended his people to live alone. He established a community, a called out body that we call the ecclesia, the assembly, the church, under the authority of Christ, under the authority of the word of God, with accountability to one another, led by elders and deacons. First Timothy 3.15 says, If I am delayed, Paul told Timothy, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, I think that we would all agree that hearing voices when nobody is around is generally not a good thing. And I have had people tell me some really crazy things that they believe God told them to do or not to do. And Christians believe and do a lot of things that they should not believe and do. So I can say with, with confidence that whatever still small voice or inner voice Christians are hearing is their own thoughts, their own impressions, their own feelings. It is not of God or the Holy Spirit speaking. Because revelation from God comes through the scripture. And listen to me, that is something outside of yourself, the scripture. That's something outside of your heart. So to hear God and to know God, you must listen to God's word, not yourself. Your impressions, your feelings can lead you astray. I was uh, looking around on some ideas for this message, and I came across this book, which I ordered. Good News for Anxious Christians. Ten Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. This was written by a philosophy professor teaching in a Bible college. And it was in the early 2000s. And he was just amazed at what all these young people were coming to him and telling him that God told him to do and how they're trying to discern the will of God and listening to this voice and that. And the end of the story is that he wrote this book concerning this idea of getting all this subjective revelation and information, which was making Christians very anxious, very anxious. So here's a couple of the titles. And let me first give you a little introduction to it, because you may want to order, especially if you're a young person. A talented teacher unpacks the riches of traditional Christian spirituality for Christians burdened by, by the guilt and anxiety of introspective that's looking within. In, in my heart, spiritual techniques, Philip Carey explains that knowing God is a gradual, long-term process that comes through the gospel experienced in Christian community. This is where sanctification takes place, within the context of a church body, slowly, over a long period of time. Carey, a philosopher at Eastern University, challenged what he called the new evangelical theology. Because a lot of what is taught today, Christians generations ago never taught that. They never taught it at all. 
he says, which is a set of supposedly practical ideas about transforming your life that actually gets in the way of believing the gospel. The techniques that he addressed all have the characteristic that they turn you away from external things like the word of God, Christ as we encounter him in scripture, and the life of the church in order to see God in your heart, your life, your experience. It's all about me. And I just want to pause right there. And this is one of the problems of preaching today, which is so relevant and so practical focused. And you, that may sound like, well, that's what we want, right? No, that's making it about you. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about power of the word. But we live in the consumer's generation, and it's all about me. I don't want to come to church unless I can take away from something from it that's about me. It's going to change my life. So you have to be careful with that. So he says, un underneath a lot of talk about being personal with God, it's a spirituality that actually leaves you alone with yourself. And that's so true. So here are a couple of the titles. I won't give you all 10. Just maybe you'll want to get the big. Why you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart. Or how God really speaks today. Two, why you don't have to believe your intuitions are the Holy Spirit. Or how the Holy Spirit really shapes, shapes your heart. Number three, why you don't have to let God take control. Or how obedience is for responsible adults. And number four, why you don't have to find God's will for your life. Or how faith seeks wisdom. And we're, we're going to get into that aspect of, well, what do we really do about decision making? So after that commercial, let's get to the story of Gideon in the fleece. The title of this message is, Don't Get Fleeced. And you're all familiar with it. It's point number three in my evaluating of popular methods. And this one is like rises right up to the top, putting the fleece out. Maybe you've done that. Maybe not in a literal way, but you know what I mean, asking God for a sign. Now, I mentioned this incident of Gideon in a prior message. And if you recall, I, I made it clear. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not an example for Christians to follow and go out and put a fleece out and ask signs for God. But many Bible teachers, even pastors, use it as a means of gaining personal direction from God. So let me make this clear. The question is not, can God speak to you in any way he wants to speak to you? The answer is what? Yes, because he is God. The question is, is God doing that? That's the real question. God spoke through Balaam's donkey one time because he can speak any way he wants to speak. But I don't see anybody trying to get a word from the Lord from a donkey. If you do, please talk with me afterwards. So let's, let's put this in, in this setting, right? Because every Bible verse has a context, not just an immediate context, but a larger context. So it's in the context of the period of the judges what we call the cycle of judges, Israel sinning, the Lord chastening them. They call out for deliverance. 
God in his mercy delivers him. You come to Judges chapter 4, and we find that Israel resorted back to their old ways. Judges 4.1, when Ehud was dead, he was one of the judges, one of the deliverers, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the popular, or that's the common verse, I should say, throughout Judges. So the Lord sold him into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, here's the chastisement, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, let me just stop there. That's a very long time in timeout. Right? 20 years of discipline, of chastisement. Why does God do that? Because the Lord disciplines those whom he what? He loves. And he loved Israel. So for 20 years, he oppressed the children of Israel. And you get down to Judges 4.15, it says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. So God was merciful again. And then you come to Judges 5. And, and Judges 5 is, is, is Deborah's and, and Barak's song of praise to Yahweh because that's whom God used to deliver them. God gave Israel a great victory. And verse 20 and 21 in chapter 5 of Judges indicates that the river Kishon, it flooded over and the adjacent ground grew muddy, making all the 900 chariots, Canaanite chariots, useless. So, see, God has lots of ways of accomplishing what he wills. Judges 5.20. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Notice verse 21. The torrent of Kishon, that's the river, swept them away. Their chariots became useless when it overflooded its banks and they were sunk in the mud. Well, another great victory, right? What happens? The cycle of Judges continues. Israel goes back in chapter 6 to their idolatrous ways. Chapter 6 of Judges, verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for, what? Seven years, another time out. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens and caves and strongholds, which are in the mountains. And God rebukes them. In verses 7 and onward in chapter 6. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. That the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. Who said to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And out of the hand of all those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you I, and gave you their land. That's goodness, right? Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. In spite of all that God had done for them in delivering them, from their oppressors, 
and then giving them the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, you did not obey my voice. And what is it? How is it with us in the light of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Well, God then commissions Gideon, one of the judges, to deliver Israel. Verse 11, chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. If they would have feared God, they wouldn't be hiding in fear from the enemy. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I like that. Because God sees what we don't, right? God sees what we don't see about ourselves. And he knows what we don't even know about ourselves. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That's the question we always ask, right? Trying to serve you, Lord. But why are bad things happening in my life? Where are the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and he's delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you. God can promise victory here, not on the basis of Gideon's power, but his own power. Have, have not I sent you? Go, Gideon. I am behind you. I am with you. A mighty fortress is our God, right? Don't you love the song? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the God, the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sebioth, his na name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. God is our strength and refuge as we sang. If you are trying to win the battle, you will never win the battle. Never. But Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can what? I can do what? All things. Through who? Through my own inner resources, natural abilities, talents, determination, strength of the will, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when we, when we lose sight of that, we will fall flat on our face. We really will. In verse 14, God told Gideon what he must do. Go and save Israel. I'm with you, right? He didn't have to go searching for God's will. And more instructions would follow. But again, this is in the context of God's redemptive purposes for Israel. But you know what? Gideon was still not convinced. Sometimes I wonder, you know, my own self, what does it take to convince me, right? What does it take to convince me the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the power of God? 
So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You're picking the bottom of the barrel. Sounds like Moses, right? You remember the story when God called him in Exodus 3.10? Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may might bring my children of Israel out of Egypt. And what did Moses say? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children out of, of uh, children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Chapter 4, verse 10, Exodus, Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I, I'm, not, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. You got the wrong man. You know what I learned from all this? We're, we're really good. We are all really good at making excuses. We really are. And wanting something more from God. And Gideon wanted further assurance that it was God who was speaking to him. So he makes his first request for a sign in verse 17 of Judges 6. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talks with me. And in verses 19 through 23, which I'm not going to read, God answered Gideon's request in a very dramatic fashion. And here's what happens next. God tells Gideon, go declare war on Baal. The man who was hiding in fear. Gideon, I want you to go and declare war on Baal. So what is the real battleground in your life? Is it your fleshly desires? Is it your anger? Is it your marriage? Declare war on it. You can have righteous anger at times. You can have good desires that satisfy you. You, you can have a good marriage in the strength and the power of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not of ourselves. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And here's the key. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Conforming your thinking to the word of God. In every situation, whatever battles you are facing, you must conform your thinking to the word of God. And you know, you can't win the battles in your Christian life until you first identify the real enemy. Right? So God gave Gideon, actually, an easier assignment to start with. Go declare war on Baal. And here's how he told him to start. He was to go and to tear down the local altar of Baal. And he was to burn the wooden pole representing Asheroth, the mistress of Baal. 
And if that is not enough, he tells Gideon, after he tears it down, to build an altar for the Lord there. This was a tremendous test of loyalty because these people were worshiping Baal. They were attributing every good thing from that came to them from the hand of Baal. So God told him in verse 25, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and eat, and eat, cut down the wooden images that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image that you have cut down. Think about that. With the image of the wood that you have cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants, as did the Lord said or commanded him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he, he did it by night. So God gives him this assignment. First act of war against Baal. And he's doing it, but his faith is still not where it needs to be. This could have cost him his life. They wanted him dead. It was his father who came to his side. After all of that, God wanted, Gideon wanted further proof that God would be with him to deliver Israel. So in verse 36, Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there was dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. God says, okay. And he did it. It says, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. That should have been enough. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak once more. Let me test. I pray just, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Putting the fleece out in popular jargon is asking God for a sign or a confirmation about a decision that you you will make. I've known many people who've done this. In the context here, it's not about that at all. Gideon knew his mission, but he still lacked the faith to go ahead with it. So he's asking God for signs, one, two, and three. Now, Robert Chisholm was a biblical scholar. I want to read you what he said. Actually, if you read Haggai 110, and I'll, I'll mention it, Gideon's choice of a sign, because this seems really strange to us, put the fleece out with dew and then let it be wet and let the ground be wet and let the, the, uh, the fleece dry. It was not arbitrary or random. Like we tend to, you know, hear people say, well, God, if you want me to do this, give me a sign, you know, let it be, uh, you know, whatever it is. And, and they pick out their sign. These tests were designed to demonstrate 
Yahweh's control of the dew. And actually, if you read Haggai 1.10, God says, you people are going about your own business, building up your own houses, taking care of your own lives, leaving my house in ruins. Therefore, I am going to withhold the dew from heaven. Bring famine in the land. No rain. So it was God who controls the dew. But the people of that day didn't believe that. This is how, how they degraded their faith. This is significant because in Canaanite thinking, the storm god Baal controlled the rain and the dew. And there's actually a, a Ugartic legend of Agat. Baal's weakness results in the disappearance of the rain and the dew. One of Baal's daughters was named Talia. Guess what her name was? What that means? Dew. Gideon had destroyed Balaam's altar, depriving him of sacrifices. Gideon's, Gideon's own father had challenged Baal to contend with his son. People wanted to kill him. And his father says, let, let, let Baal, if he's God, let Baal take care of the problem. Let Baal kill him. And in fact, Gideon's new name, Jerubabel, Jerubabel, made him a potential target for one of Baal's lightning bolts. By seeing a demonstration of Yahweh's sovereignty over the dew, an area that was supposedly under the control of Baal, Gideon could be assured that he was insulated from Baal's vengeance. This was no arbitrary thing that he was asking God for. He knew what he was asking God for. Show me that you're more powerful than the God who brings the dew, Baal. So what does this have to do with Christians seeking a sign from God in their personal decision-making? Nothing at all. It has nothing to do with it. What many call trusting God for a sign is actually testing God. And that's what Gideon did when he was weak in faith. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not test the Lord your God as you tested him in Massah. Matthew 16.4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after what? A sign. What did we read in the scripture reading? The Greeks or the Jews, what? Seek after a sign the Jews, the Greeks' wisdom. Now, let me also say this. If a verse of Scripture jumps out of the page at you, put it back. All right? Let me explain it. Put it back into its context where it's found. God does use Scripture to get our attention and direct us but never when it is misused and abused. When, when I was a young believer, there was a very godly woman in our church who was dying of cancer. And I, I would go visit her. I visited her many times. And every time I went, she would tell me, I shall not die, but live. And she got that because she said God had given her Psalm 118, verse 16, 
The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And she said that was God's word to her and she was sure of it and she was going to live. And she didn't. She died. She went home to her heavenly reward. Let me give you another example. Robert Morris, a senior pastor of Gateway Church. This is a multi-campus church based in Dallas, Texas. He's a TBN broadcaster. He says this, God told him to pastor a church when he was 30 years old. While he was seeking the Lord's face, he claims that he was impressed, impressed in her feelings by the Holy Spirit to read Luke 3. And lo and behold, he came to verse 23. He read this, Luke 3.23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. And that just leaped out of the page for him. And he should have put it back. Because it was not God speaking to him about when to begin his ministry. It was God telling, <laughs> telling him when Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. Listen, friends, Scripture is not modeling clay that you can fit to your impressions and feelings, that you can mold to your impressions and feelings. So please don't misuse Gideon's story of putting the fleece out. It has a context and you are not in it. And neither am I. Don't get fleeced. You know, we the Bible's wonderful, right? It's just an um, incredible book that'll change our lives. And as I said in the very beginning, it is sufficient for a life of faith and godliness. We don't need, need all of this subjective, inner, mystical stuff to live the normal Christian life, a godly Christian life. You know what? Gideon got a great victory, didn't he? You know the story. We don't have time to go through it. God didn't need thousands of men to help Gideon. God did an incredible miracle, just as he promised Gideon. You will save Israel, but I'm the one who's behind you. And it says in verse 32, chapter 8, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a, at a good old age, which is oftentimes a sign of blessing, was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Oprah of the Abyssalites. So he got this great, great victory. He lived to a great old age. He was renowned in Israel. But even more than that, in, 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 in the chapter 11, the, the great chapter of faith in the Bible, uh, verse 32 of Hebrews 11 says, What more will I say? For time will fail, fail me to tell of Gideon. He's included in the chapter. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and his prophets. But his faith, his faith was very weak in the beginning, right? Very weak. But it became strong. And the story really of Gideon is not about Gideon. It's about God. It's about God. And that's, why I think, one of the really sad things is what I said earlier. We want to come to church. We want to learn a technique. We, we, we want the message to be relevant because we make it all about us. And when it's all about us, we lose, we lose God in the story. 
we lose Christ. You know why Spurgeon was such a powerful preacher? He didn't, he didn't end his sermons by saying, oh, now let me make something applicable to your lives. Let's make this relevant. You know why he was so powerful? Because he preached Christ. He made it about Christ. The power of the gospel. The word of God. The stories of how God used did mighty things in very ordinary people's lives because he is God. You, 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 you go and you, you, you hear a, a tremendous composition by Beethoven played by somebody who can play it spectacularly. And you come away and, and you go, oh, what is the relevance of that to me? How can I apply that to my life? No. It's the beauty of the piece. It's, it's about, about the composition. It's not about you or me. And we could do the same thing in sermons. So I'm not saying it's, I, I try to make things relevant at times, and make application. But if you take anything away from what I'm saying to you today, is that when you come here to worship God and to hear the word of Christ preached, it's not about you. It's about God. Churches today, big mega churches, multi-campus churches, they got all the lights and the sounds and they got everything. They got the movie scenes the fl because they're trying to make it about the people. Because if they don't make it about the people, the people won't come. The problem is Christ is lost in it. The word of God is lost in it. Philip Terry says, listen, the application part of the, this, everybody wants to make application and relevancy. He says, that's the boring part. That's the boring part of the message. The exciting part of the message is when it's about Christ, when it's about him, when it's about the gospel. Well, you wish this would end on a good note, right? But it didn't. Chapter 8, verse 33. This struck me. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal berith their God. What does it take to convince somebody? Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel Gideon in accord with the good that he had done Israel. So, the, so I know this for a fact, and you see things like this. People can forget you pretty quickly. And they will. They can forget the good things that you have done. And they generally will. But worse than that, they can forget the God who saved them. And that's, that's the tragic part of this story. The tragic part of the whole book of Judges, the cycle of Judges. God delivers and they turn aside from him. I hope that's not your story. 
I hope that we, all of us here who know Christ as Savior, will, will, will remain steadfast, immovable, the Bible says. Immovable by the things of life that come our way, which happen both to the good and to the bad, because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That we will not be moved by this. That our faith will be steadfast, immovable, and that we will always abound in the work of the Lord. That's why you're here, right? That's why God saved you. God saved you to serve him wherever you are.